You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's continue in our worship. Let's go to God's Word this morning. We've been working through Hebrews and making great progress for these last uh, few months. And today we're finishing up chapter 9. So we're in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 22 to 28. Let's go there together. Let's ready our, our hearts to receive God's word, because God speaks. God is not silent. He speaks to us today. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. If you were here last week, you remember that we talked a lot about blood. We talked a lot about the purpose of sacrifice, the purpose of Christ's blood, the meaning of it all, and why we need blood. And we read in verse 22 uh, last week, finishing up there, we read it again as we start this passage, which reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. A penalty has to be paid, a debt has to be paid, someone has to die, Christ takes upon himself our sins in our place. And the author of Hebrews is going to build on this theme, that there is a sin problem that's been satisfied with Christ. He's building on this theme, theme moving from the sin problem now to a new problem. And that's what Hebrews is all about. One problem to the next and showing how Christ is greater. Jesus is greater than everything and any one for all times. And building on that, the problem he moves to now is not a sin problem, but an isolation problem, an isolation problem, a relationship problem, a communion problem with God. Sins are forgiven, but we don't have relationship with him. We're far off from him. And isolation isn't good for anybody. You know, you may be an introvert. You may be socially awkward. You may be an extrovert, no matter who you are. Even if you're an extrovert, there's crowds you may like, but everybody needs a, a respite and a break. Whoever you are, no one likes to, though, be lonely. Even if you're extrovert and you love to be around people, you're energized by community and crowds and fellowship, loneliness is different. No one likes to be lonely. No one likes to be the feeling of utter isolation that you're disconnected from others. And there's this radical disturbance that we have seen over the last couple years due to the pandemic this, that has resulted in this relationship isolation, a brokenness from one another, a, a distance from one another. 
And that having time to kind of reflect on this as a society and as families and as a church, many across many different areas of society are saying, okay, there's things we've learned from our time away from each other. It's good to be connected. No matter who you are, even if you're introvert or socially awkward, it's good to be connected. There's an importance of meaningful connection with others. I've been privileged, I do count it a privilege to have been able to hear over the last couple years of a lot of things that God has been working on in people's lives within our church and struggles and things like that. And, and not a single person has come to me and said, one lesson I've learned through this pandemic is this, it's taught me I have just too many people speaking into my life. No one has said that. But what a lot of people have said is this, one lesson I've learned is that it was wrong to push so many people away. It was wrong to isolate. It was wrong to distance. It was wrong to drift. It was wrong to cut others out. It was wrong to prioritize other things other than meaningful connection with God and his people. We know what it's like to experience an isolation problem and then we can know what it's like to kind of reconnect. Well, we have an isolation problem with God as a result of sin. That's what sin creates. It creates a morality problem, a sin problem. It creates an isolation problem with God. And Jesus fixes that. He fixes that problem, and our passage addresses that. The clue is in the repetition of the word, this verb, appear. Three times we see that it's a short passage. When you're looking through scripture and you're trying to figure out what is the author wanting us to know, one of the things you can look at is well, what's repeated over and over again? What themes are going on in here? What's, what dialogue is happening? What, what is, what's happening in this passage? And we see here so clearly this repetition of this word appear. Verse 24, 26, and 28. Jesus has appeared in heaven in our place. Jesus has appeared to put away our sacrifice. And Jesus will appear again. This time, not to deal with our sin, but to save us and to bring us to himself. We learned last night the power of Jesus' sacrifice, and now we learn the power of Jesus' presence. He appears. He shows up. And that is so important to what we have, what it means to be a Christian, and what we have in our relationship with God, what it means to be connected to God. His appearing, his showing up, so to speak, is the sufficient support for all of life's difficulties and trials that we will ever need. Jesus showed up. He shows up. He will show up again. Let's look further into these ways that Jesus has appeared and how he has showed up. We're just going to look at these three. Kind of this past, this present reality, and this future appearing. He shows up. He appears in heaven. That's what we're told first here. In the Old Testament order of worship, it was the priests who entered into the Holy of Holies, this man-made tent to offer sacrifices to God. But Jesus, as our greater high priest, he's entered into the heavenly tent, not a tent made by man, not by hands, but a tent in heaven that into heaven itself in the presence of God on our behalf. Here we go again with another comparison to Jesus as our high priest. You may be thinking, haven't we gotten this covered? I mean, it, we have covered this in like three chapters that Jesus is the greater high priest. The author gets really excited about this fact that Jesus is 
this greater priest that has entered into the presence of God for us. We've covered it like six times in Hebrews. Why again? It's intentionally repetitive because you and I are regularly forgetful. We need to remember this. And we're not forgetful for facts. We know Jesus died. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven where now he sits at the right hand of God in glory and in power. He is in the presence of God for us. Okay, so what? And so, but we forget, we forget the significance and that's why we need to walk through this again. We reflect again on the significance that he is in heaven for us. And it's compared to this old way, it's contrasted with this old way of worship. The old way of worship, the priests, these earthly priests would go into a earthly tent as a symbol of God's dwelling place. They encountered a fire there as a symbol of God's presence. They then took a sacrifice, which was a symbol of a substitution for our sins. Then we encountered this wash basin, which was a symbol of our need to come to God pure and washed of our sin. And then the priests encountered a curtain, right? Actually, two curtains. One curtain after another to gain access to God as a symbol that there is separation between God who is holy and man who is sinful. Then they encountered the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was a symbol of God's provision, his presence, his power among his people. And all of that was sufficient for what it was created for. What it was designed for was to be a symbol. How much more significant is than the real work of Christ, to whom the symbol and every symbol before pointed. That's what our author is wanting us to see. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest who offers his perfect life, his perfect purity, his perfect obedience and righteousness enters into not the presence of God shown by the symbol of something else, but the immediate presence of God to secure for us all that he has promised. But why is it important? Why is it important that Jesus has appeared in the presence of God in heaven on our behalf? Here's the imagery. Before Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead and entered into heaven, relationship with God was only promised through symbols. It was only promised through symbols, but the promise and symbol became a reality of what was to come in Jesus. And Jesus did all that. It means that for those who come to God through Christ now have fellowship with God, not in a symbolic way, not in a metaphorical way, not in a sentimental way, that those who come to God through Jesus Christ have relationship with God in a literal way. Have you ever opened up a gift only to find that the gift inside was not the gift, but actually a picture printed out of the gift? Have you ever gotten with that? I know what that's like. That's a weird thing, isn't it? That's such a weird thing. It, it's like you open this up, it's like, wait, this is, it doesn't feel like you got something. You're like, it's coming. It's, sorry, it got here late. It's, it's gonna come. This is a gift that's gonna come. Well, how do I be excited about that? It's like, I, I, okay, I can be excited that I got this, but I, but I don't really got this. It didn't arrive yet. It's a strange moment to open up a gift of a picture of a gift that has yet to come. You're excited, but it's a different kind of excitement. What was 
once a future promise is now a present reality. And everything that has happened in the old wave through the sacrificial system and the tent in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem, everything was just a picture of the gift that was promised. One day, the real thing is going to come. We were never meant to, be, to run around with the picture of that gift and say, I'm so glad I got this. Because it represents what is to come. And then when that thing actually comes, you say, this is what I've been waiting for. This is where my joy is. This is what will give me, have, have, help me have a lot of fun. This is a sign of, of your love for me and your kindness to me. It's in that gift. This is what is happening with Jesus in the old way. And yet people were actually finding joy, happiness, security, identity in the picture of the gift that was yet to come. And the author of Hebrews says, you've got it wrong. Don't do this. Jesus Jesus is greater. And all of these things are just a symbol. What was once a future promise is now experienced as a present reality through Jesus Christ. We are no longer waiting in the sense of having the blessing of God, being a new creation, the forgiveness of sins, justification, being seen as innocent before God because of what Jesus has done for us. We no longer have to work strivingly for, for our worth, our security, our acceptance. Jesus enters into heaven to make this thing that everyone longed for to be a present reality. If you're a Star Trek fan, Jesus boldly goes where no man has gone before, right? He goes, no human has ever bodily stepped foot into heaven, into the presence of God, the immediate presence of God, but Jesus Christ to open up the way for us, to prepare the way for us, to tell us you're no longer waiting. This is what is yours. If you really want to be forgiven, if you really want to be saved, something in your life must happen beyond the symbolic and must be something of substance, not symbolism, not metaphor. A real relationship, a real trust, a real resting in Christ and what he has done, that he really died, he really rose, he really is in heaven today. Why? On our behalf, that's what our passage says, for us, so that we can be in the immediate presence of God, no longer following a symbol, but the real thing. So he appears in heaven. But then he appears, we see a second time, he appears once and for all. Here's the second time this word is used in verse 26. For then he would have to offer, suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the priests had to come into the temple every single year and offering a sacrifice every year repeatedly. But since Jesus has offered the perfect sacrifice in himself and has entered into heaven, God receives that sacrifice, accepts it as a suitable payment for our debt of sin. It's done. It's finished. The debt is paid. You don't have to do it anymore. The particular emphasis this point has in mind is to show that Jesus' death is a once and for all event that changes everything. We need to talk about that. That his death is a once and for all sacrifice 
that changes everything. Jesus died to remove our sin, and this only needed to happen once. In fact, it could only happen once, for he only had one life uh, to give. And since his sacrifice was perfect, there would be no need to sacrifice again because sin would now be forgiven and the debt would be paid. This is exciting. And I want to share this excitement with you. And I want to have some fun in this passage. But let me tell you what we have to do first. If we want to have fun with this passage, if we want to be excited about it, we have to first get excited about grammar. That's right, grammar. All right, who's with me? Grammar, okay? This is the beauty of grammar. Remember, I told you that we have the usage of the word in three times, appears. We see it three times. The first is past tense. The third one's gonna be future tense. There's something going on in this middle one. This is called the perfect tense. English majors, are you with me? Everybody else pay attention here. This is where it gets really exciting. The perfect tense represents the ongoing result of a present time of a completed past action. Goosebumps, oh my goodness. Do you see what's happening here? What, What the author is telling us, what Jesus has done. Let me explain in English. Tonight, if I ask you a simple question, have you eaten dinner? And if you have eaten dinner, you might be inclined to say to me, yes, I ate dinner, but that would be grammatically incorrect and confusing. Let me tell you why. Because if you say, I ate dinner, it implies grammatically that at some point in the past you ate dinner. It, does, it could be a week ago. It could be a month ago, a year ago, it could have been yesterday's dinner, but you did not address my question about dinner tonight. The proper grammatical way to answer my question is say, yes, I have eaten dinner. The question you're asking about, are my sins paid for? The Bible doesn't say, Jesus died for your sins. It says, Jesus has died for your sins. I'm not talking about yesterday's sins or a sin in a year ago. I'm talking about the debt that you owe God. Is it paid for? Yes. Because he has appeared once and for all. The end of the age is not referring to the end of time. It's referring to Jesus' coming, the incarnation of Christ, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And having appeared as our sacrifice, having died in our place, and having presented himself in our place for our judgment before the throne of God means this. If the question is, has Christ died for our sins? The answer is not, he died for our sins, but he has died. It is finished. The debt that we owe because of our sin has been paid in full. And Christians don't often get this, maybe intellectually, but this has a radical implication for how we live every single moment of our lives. We often come to faith in Christ only to feel this ongoing 
burden of having to deal with the guilt of our sin and shame over our past lives and feeling the guilt of our sin over and over and over again. Many Christians constantly talk about how sinful they are, how unworthy they are, how desperate they are. Experiencing these these burdens over and over again because of their sin, pleading with God, hoping that he will forgive them. And that mentality is the result of a life that puts their emphasis on personal decision rather than the work of Jesus for them. But I'm not good yet. There's still, there's still sinful things that I do. There's still a heart that disbelieves. There's still temptations that I fall into. I'm such a horrible and rotten person. How could anyone love me? It is a mentality that focuses on our identity with Christ that is based on our decision and not his completed work. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got to fix this. Because Christ has appeared once and for all. Jesus showing up to give himself for us changes everything. This is the great encouragement for those who trust in Christ. It's great encouragement to ones who look at their lives and still condemn themselves for sin. Now, I know he loves me. He's died for my sins but I still got a lot of work to do and I'm still not the person I want to be. You're carrying a debt that he does not see. You're carrying a debt that you don't owe. The sufficiency of Jesus' sacrificial death for the forgiveness of sins is the centerpiece of Christian salvation. Jesus' unrepeatable action has secured our eternal salvation. Unrepeatable action, eternal salvation. And to believe this will radically transform your life. The Apostle Paul wants us to ask ourselves in Romans chapter 8, a similar question. He says, so who, will, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God, is it, is it God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So same themes here, here, right? He appeared, he came, he conquered, he rose, he ascended, he intercedes for us now. He did all that. What are you waiting for? Who can condemn you for your sins if you trust in Jesus? That's what he asks. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? If you paid a credit card debt off, if you paid off a car loan or a student loan and the creditors kept calling you and you had a zero balance and they said, you need to keep paying this, would you say, I know, I'm so sorry. I know that about myself. I'm just, I need, I know I need to do better. You would say, I'm sorry, that debt's been paid. Stop calling me. Why? Because it has been paid. Did you pay your debt? Yes, I paid it. No, that's not what it's asking. Did you pay your debt? Yes, it has been paid. That means it's been paid off. And this is the way, by God's grace through faith, because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, it is applied to us, his righteousness, his perfection. 
We are justified by faith and his righteousness is imputed to us. That means God looks at us as if our debt has been paid, not because of our merit, not because of our work, not because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus who died on the cross, who rose. Oh my gosh, what was that? <laughs> Never know. Who died on the cross, who is, intercedes for us. Are you that confident as you would be with a creditor who called your house knowing that you don't have any debt? Are you that confident when you feel condemned by sin? Are you that confident to approach the throne of grace? The writer of Hebrews actually asks us that. He tells us that. He says, so we can now confidently draw near to the throne of grace and seek the help that we need in time of help, in time of need. Why? Because we come as his beloved children, washed, clean, forgiven, It is the saddest thing in the world to be a person who knows that they're forgiven yet lives each and every day with the uncertainty and doubt of God's ongoing love and care for them. Sad. When you're struggling, don't merely just recall facts about God, but let those facts drive you into a faithful action to draw near to his throne of grace with confidence. His throne is no longer a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace It is there we find mercy, we find grace in time of need. And so he appeared once and for all, knowing that we will die one day and stand before him in judgment. And this is pretty amazing. The future verdict has already been announced. So we're not, this means that the Christian who trusts in Jesus When we die, which all of us will, and we will stand before the throne of judgment, we will not need to ask ourselves, what's going to happen? Because the verdict has already been announced, forgiven, justified, innocent. You and I will die one day, and on that day we will face judgment, but the one who trusts in Jesus has nothing to fear. Nothing to fear, for Jesus has appeared once and for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And our impending death and judgment, it's not meant to make us anxious, but rather it's meant to make us hopeful, hopeful right? That's, the, that's the, really the thrust of this passage. It's, it's meant to make us hopeful, filled with joy, filled with expectancy. That's the reason for this final occurrence of this word um, appearing. Jesus appearing is showing up. He said, okay, so, so now knowing all this has happened, Jesus is going to appear again. He has appeared into heaven to open up the way for us. He's in the immediate presence of God, interceding for us as our great high priest. He has appeared to give his life for our sins once and for all, past, present, and future. We are no longer condemned. And he's going to come again. He's going to show up again. So he will appear again. Chapter 9 closes with this really great perspective on the return of Christ. How do you think about the return of Christ? Is it one of impending, you know, doom and fear and judgment? That's a reality for those who don't trust in Jesus. We will all be judged. We're either judged by our record and character or we're judged by the character of Christ and his work for us. But here the focus, notice, the focus on his coming is not to come to judge or to punish. 
But the focus is on the relief in the hearts of those who can't wait to see him. There's hope. There's expectancy. There's joy. The focus is on hope. The imagery here brings us to that once a year blood sacrifice that would happen in that earthly tent. People, God's people would gather around the temple and the priest would go in with a basin of blood. They'd offer sacrifices within the temple court. They'd cover, they would spill, they would uh, sprinkle blood on themselves. They'd sprinkle blood on the walls. They'd sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. They'd sprinkle blood on the, the lampstand and the table of bread. They, they would, it'd be a very bloody mess, right? We talked about that last week. We don't need to go into it again. But as the high priest was in there and making his journey through all of these rituals and all of these steps, what do you think the people were doing? Going about their business? No, they were holding their breath, waiting for that priest to come back. Because if he came back, it was a demonstration that the sacrifice worked, that it was offered for their sins, and God accepted it because he was still alive and God didn't strike him dead. And he came out having made the sacrifice, and there would be this corporate sigh of relief. (sighs) He's back. It worked. That's what awaits us. Jesus will appear in a similar way. When he came the first time, it was to bring that blood sacrifice, that offering to God to pay for our sins. And when he comes again, it will not be to bring that same thing. It will not be to bring payment for sin. Because when he appears, it will be too late for that. The time is now to trust in Christ. The time is now to know of his sacrifice, to repent of sin, to trust in him, to rest in his completed work to believe in the good news of his truth. The time is now for that. When he comes, it will be too late for that to deal with our sin because when he comes, what is he coming to do? To bring us to himself. To come and get us, those who are his. When Jesus comes, it won't be to offer forgiveness or sacrifice. He will come to offer himself He comes to bring rescue, to bring salvation, our passage says. Salvation can be seen past, present, and future, right? We have been saved once and for all. We're being saved in the sense that we are growing more and more and being sanctified in the image of Christ. And one day we will be saved once and for all to the uttermost where no sin, no temptation, new creation, new bodies, and a pure and perfect relationship in the immediate presence of God. We look forward to that. Jesus comes, most importantly, not just to bring stuff, not just to bring blessings and gifts. He comes to bring himself. Complete rescue from the consequence of sin, yes, but the best thing about this, his coming, is that we will be in the immediate presence of God. We will be with him forever. So focus on me. Focus with me. (laughs) Don't focus on me, please. Focus on this. What does it look like to to wait expectantly for that? It says this, he will come to get those who eagerly wait for him. What does that look like in your heart? What does it look like for a heart 
to eagerly wait for Christ. It's something in the heart of a person that, that trusts, that rests, that longs. It doesn't say anxiously wait for him. Just get me out of this mess. No, it says eager, eagerly, longingly. It's different than being anxiously waiting. There may be apathetically waiting. Like, I just don't care anymore. Just get this over with. There's also impatiently waiting. What's happening in our heart with one who eagerly waits? There's a sense of, of longing. There's a sense of pain. But there's also a sense of hope that seasons all that. There's a sense of joy in, even in the midst of the reality of the not yet. Like something that we're longing for to happen that hasn't happened yet. What does that mean for you? Are, let me ask you this. Are, are you one that could be described as one who eagerly waits for him? What keeps you from eagerly waiting for him? And how can you get back to that? I can't answer those questions for you, but you can answer those questions. I encourage you to, to dig in with that. Like, pray about this. Journal through this. Read God's word and, and, and let, ask him to discern your heart. God, what does it look like for me to eagerly wait for you? And, and are, are there habits and things in my life and perspectives that are causing me to, to not eagerly wait for you? Are there fears that I have? Are there loves that I'm pursuing? Are there desires that are tangling up my heart? Are there anxieties that, of this world that I just need to give over to you? Where is your heart today? And reflect on what this passage is teaching you and how Christ's appearing has given us all that we need and the greatest assurance of his love and care for us, past, present, and future. And we get to eagerly await him. And then let's respond to him with faith, with hope, with trust, with obedience, and with rest, knowing he is a God who is faithful, who never gives up on his promises.